establishing connection to Science Night. Please stand by. Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we are breaking from that standard cyanide formula that you've come to know and tolerate to bring you the 2022 Halloween Spectacular. We're going to start by talking about some of our favorite creepy cryptids and finish off with a chilling tale from River Power's own Cody Sullivan as he brings you the tale of the Eagle Bluff Tapper. So let's get into it and talk about some cryptids. Tonight we're talking about cryptids, and before we get into it, we have to establish the things that we're talking about. So we're going to get a little bit sciencey. We're going to talk about everyone's favorite branch of science, cultural anthropology and folklore. That's right, Jason. I see you perked right up. Oh, yeah. We're probably going to we're gonna get into like British hegemony and the uh, great game by talking about yetis and maybe even a little bit of internal and external culture of Loch Ness monsters. Uh, maybe we can use maybe we can use push pull factors of urbanization with sasquatches in the Pacific Northwest. All of these fun fun, t- or we could you know. I don't be, know what any of this like, means. You know, to be honest, like neither does most most of anthropology. They're just making it up. So when uh, when I was a grad student in anthropology, sorry, this is an important story. We made T-shirts for the Anthropology Student Association. And by the way, I just want to put a pin in that for a second and say that I tried f- to officially get the name of that the student organization to be the. Um, uh, the Anthropology Student Society because I thought the I was going to say that would be mm, way better, good. right? But yeah. no, I lost out, right? So the ASA, right, the Anthropology Student Association, that's what it was. But we made these T-shirts that said Anthropology, dangerously close to science, and some people got <laughs> so upset because it wasn't close, you know? Because they, well, I look at them, I look through a microscope, I do science, like yeah, you do anthropology. I mean. Hold on. Wait a minute. Ouch. I feel like I gotta stick up for the uh, the cultural anthropologists because they are famously unable to stick up for themselves. Uh, <laughs> they are using the scientific method to talk about mm, things. I'm not even sure the scientific method is the right. It's a hypothetical deductive reasoning. I will give them that. There right? we go. But the scientific method... Not so much. There's because lots of post- different ways to do science. That's correct, sure. but uh, none of them includes postmodernism. <laughs> so there's that. What about postprocessionalism? Or that, right? <laughs> All of the. I'm just. I'm getting to the end of the anthro. Like, let me ask uh, you this. Buzzwords I have. Because let me ask you this, Steph. Like at the end of the day, when you turn off um, the tokamak, do you ever say, "Now, tokamak, how did that make you feel?" All the time. Okay. No. Well, then you do. An- you do anthropology too. <laughs> 
You're getting dangerously close to sociology. <laughs> now that we've bashed like a lot of science, yeah, we're, we're, we're established done. that physics is the only science. Right, mind you, bashed science, science that I have two degrees in. So <laughs> we're you know, waste of money. Yeah, one of us. So here's why I love cultural anthropology, and I really do. I, I you know, I, I talked a lot of smack because I have two other scientists around me, and I want to seem cool. But here's the thing: I love cultural anthropology, specifically one branch of it, and that is folklore, because mm. it is the study of the lore of the folk. Like, how do these stories get into our imagination and work their way into the, I don't know, tapestry, the tapestry of our lives. I love uh, that. Because it's really yeah. fun and we got to talk about fun things. So we're gonna start by talking about those crazy cryptids, part of our folklore, and we're gonna start by seeing what the definition of a cryptid is. Because you can just like basically say it's a hidden creature. Literally that's what a cryptozoological creature is. It's like a hidden thing. But there's a better and more fun definition by father of cryptozoology, Bernard Hovelmans, who has this great quote, but you don't really need to look up about him because he said some pretty wild stuff about things. So let's read this. According to him, a cryptid is an animal that must have at least one trait that is truly singular, unexpected, paradoxical, striking, emotionally upsetting and thus capable of mythification and we can all think of people in our lives that fit at least one of those categories so that people that say cryptids don't exist man like you should have been in philadelphia this weekend because mm -hmm. it was crazy yeah there's also Greece one more trait that you're missing to cryptids there what has to that? be a minimum size does there? Yeah. There must be a minimum oh. size. That was in the article. Oh. For a creature to count as having cryptozoological zoological interest. Well, so how big is that yeah. size? What is the size threshold? Do you know? Does it have to be large or does it have to be small? At it's least small. Definitely not zooplankton. Nothing like that. Yeah. Definitely They have to be like scary. observable observable yeah. by the naked eye. Yeah. So that's right. You can have like your giant Sasquatches, but in Jason's home area of indiana they have the uh, little cryptids called the puckwudgies and oh where's the where's the mounds what county is that mounds that madison yeah well there are there are madison county mounds right i mean most of the yeah. native american mounds are like in the mississippi valley river river valley that was bad um but uh you know not so much in the ohio river valley yeah it was Madison County. I remember reading about that when I went to beautiful, uh, beautiful virtual Indianapolis for mm. a, a virtual Gen Con. And I wanted to talk to the local crowd that didn't exist because we were all on the Internet. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, yeah, the, there's uh, little puckwudgies in the, the Madison County mounds. So they, they have to be, like, observable by the naked eye. And at least, like, seem like this is animal size. So, yes, thank you for pointing that out. There, We don't have – we don't have cryptid zooplankton, but there are a lot of hidden bacteria and sickle cell organisms that are just waiting to strike our respiratory tracts and shut the world down for two years. Right. Ugh. Well, this just took a dark turn. Let's get back episode. to cryptids. Let's get back it's to cryptids. It's the Halloween episode. It's got to be spooky and chilling and devilish. Uh, Ooh, and devilish. then 
let's so we've like kind of defined about what a cryptid is and let's see what we use cryptids for historically they were like the things that marked the edges of the map they were the dragons in here there be dragons or like sea serpents or things that just mark the area like oh there's probably something there we'll put dragon there and uh, make an entire multimedia project out of it appearing sunday nights on hbo and in the modern time, this has changed a little bit. Modern cryptids are the things that, like, oh, we really feel bad about destroying this entire forest. Let's make some kind of mythical creature take the place of this this area that used to be, like, beautiful, untouched forest. Or, as one of the authors that I read for this podcast episode said... There's just not a lot of frontier anymore, so it adds a little bit of spookiness and unknown into the world that we know so much about. And I kind of like that explanation, right? Like, I agree. It makes oh. me start to think about the sunken forests in China we, we talked about. Yes! Right? Imagine oh, how yeah. many cryptids are down there. Dozens. Dozens, right? Dozens. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Dozens. This is probably going to be... A strange cross section and people that listen to this episode because I'm gonna market the crap out of this to the cryptic community, right? And then our regular science people are gonna listen to this and they're like, they've gone off the deep end. But I want to talk to you about some of the things that we thought were like fake and to- turned out to be like totally real, like the sea serpent, which is just an oarfish. Oarfish get really big, and if you're looking at them from a distance, you could see like. This is that standard sea serpent of, of spikes coming out of the water over a large distance. And mermaids are real, too, you know? Like, they're manatees, and, you know, old older sailors used to drink a lot. Narwhals. They, Narwhals they, are unicorns. They're I sea know, unicorns. They look like mythical creatures. I mean, that's they amazing. definitely striking. That's yeah. for sure. I don't know if they're emotionally upsetting because they're pretty cool. They Although have, I guess like, well, if one was like swimming directly head. at you, that would be pretty emotionally upsetting. <laughs> I imagine. And then the coelacanth. They're like one of the oldest species of fish. And, you know, we see so many fossils that are like, well, obviously this can't exist. We haven't seen one in so long. And then they found some living. And then they found more. They were thought to go extinct in the late Cretaceous, so like 65 million years ago. Um but they were discovered living off the coast of South Africa in 1938. They are thought to be over 410 million years old. What? Yeah. Yeah. Here, I'll show you a picture, Steph. I'm going to share my screen. Okay. Just let Steffi react to the pictures. I like this. I'm, I'm afraid. No. No, 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 no. The, the last one was worse. Mm, we don't know. No. So I am afraid of like two things. One is drains and the other is gills. And this is no. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we talked about oarfish. We talked about coelacanth. That just kind of adds one of the categories of cryptids that we can talk about, which is just the deep. Because we don't know a lot about the ocean, especially the really deep ocean. I thought you were talking about the deep from the boys. And <laughs> it's problematic. Oh, yes. Also gills. Also gills. <laughs> Things like the Kraken, the Leviathan, they were probably squids, like giant giant squids. Yeah. So when I was collecting my dissertation data, I was dissecting a whole bunch of monkeys that were co- in the collections of the Smithsonian. So I was out at the Museum Support Center, which is off-site, off the mall. It's where they keep all the other stuff that they can't put on display. 
And one of the things that's in alcohol and in a tank, as long as it is, is a giant squid. It was awesome. Mm. Thing was amazing to look at. We're establishing like some some categories for cryptids, right? What do they do? What do they what do they think? So we have like the things that mark the frontier, the things that mark the frontier that once was, the thing that puts wonder into a world that we know a lot about, and also like the things that are super far underwater and we just can't see them because of like pressure and stuff like that. And there's one more category that I want to establish. And that is sports mascots. Uh, so that's going to be something that we have a little bit fun with later on. But just kind of remember these categories as we're going around. See if you can put some fun sports mascots into them. So now that we have like a little bit of a methodology or at least some broad categories to talk about these fun cryptids let's actually talk about some cryptids this is, you can now stop fast forwarding you got to the point you want to hear listener so we're going to start with i think two-thirds of the uh, uh the co-host of this podcast favorite cryptid and that is the jersey devil steffi why don't you steer this ship right to the pine barrens okay and tell about the jersey devil yeah we're heading to south jersey slash the philly area um, it's also called the Leeds Devil. I picked this one because I used to live in New Jersey, so it was, I'm afraid of New Jersey. Checks out. Okay, so I was looking in the, the background of the Jersey Devil, um, and it in, inhabits. This is just a background of what the Jersey Devil looks like, and then I'll talk to like the origins of it. So it inhabits the forest of the Pine Barrens in South Jersey, like uh, what James said. Um, it's most like it most it looks a lot like a flying biped with hooves is what you'll see. There's a lot of variations about this. Um, typically, the common description is is a bipedal kangaroo like or wyvern like. Did I pronounce that right, word right? Wyvern, dragon like, wyvern like yeah. creature with a horse or a goat like head. Oftentimes has leathery bat like wings horns small arms with clawed hands again the legs with the cloven hooves and a forked tail like a devil um, moves really really fast emits a very high-pitched blood-curdling scream so that's typically what you'll hear it described as and i found two origins for this <clears throat> so the first one started in the pine barrens and they're always around the pine barrens area with the resident jane leeds um, oftentimes she's called mother leeds she had 12 kids. Which only makes it yeah. creepier, by the way. <laughs> right? 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 Like, if she was just called Jane, that's one thing, but right. it's Mother Leeds. Mother right? Leeds. Mother Leeds, yeah. right? What does Father yeah. Leeds think? It doesn't matter. It could only be creepier if she was like Good Wife Leeds, right? Or Goody, goody Leeds. Then, then you get some Salem Witch <laughs> trial vibes. I mean, some of them do say that the mother, that she was a witch. Um, but Boom. this one, Did I'll it. get into that later. Yeah. So she had 12 kids, found out she was pregnant with the 13th time, cursed the child, cried that the kid would be the devil. Then she went into labor um, on a stormy night in 1735. The child was born, looked normal. Then the 13th kid changed into a creature with hooves, goat's head, bat wings, and a forked tail. The child then growled, screamed, beat everyone with its tail, and then flew up into a chimney. And then went to the Pine Barrens. And then failed to win a Stanley Cup. 
Right. And now it's just in that area wrecking havoc. And then another variation of this same story says that Mother Leeds was actually a witch and the kid's dad was the devil. So that Ooh. checks out. I like that yep. one. Yep. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. The mother's consort in this tale is Claude Lemieux. <laughs> 90s hockey fans will remember him as the guy that ended Eric Lindros's career. <laughs> I just can't help but think, like, did not the Jersey Devil grow up to, like, open Taj Mahal in Atlantic City? <laughs> yeah, yeah he, was, he was president a couple years ago. Right, that's yeah. what I thought. I mean, well, like, that's seems, the area. that seems, seems to check out. Yeah. He's a shapeshifter. The other version of this story involves Ben Franklin and an almanac war. Love it. Have you heard That's this all good one? stories do. No. This one, I haven't heard okay. this one, so I'm very happy okay. to add to my Ben Franklin knowledge. <laughs> okay. So, again, with the family name of Leeds, because it's Jersey Devil, sometimes the Leeds Devil. Um, <clears throat> ben Franklin had an almanac, and he had a, a rival that had an almanac uh, publisher, Daniel Leeds. So, Daniel's third wife gave birth to nine children. His family lived in the Pine Barrens area, now known as Leeds Point. Um, so that's, again, one of the areas mostly associated where the Jersey Devil lives. Um, Daniel was a Quaker, became ostracized by his Quaker congregation after he published in 1687 in his almanac using astro astrological symbols and writings. So the Quakers are like, nope. Mm, you are fascinated with Christian occultism, mysticism. We are not having anything to do with you. And then Daniel was then endorsed by British royal governor of New Jersey, Lord Cornberry. And so the Quakers further are like, we cannot stand you. Go away. The drama really began after that because he was ostracized from, from the church. Um, his son, Titan Leeds, took over the almanac and then started this feud with Ben Franklin, <laughs> where Ben Franklin made fun of his almanac that had this uh, astrological symbols in there. By Ben Franklin satirically used those, uh, the astrology in his almanac to predict Titan's death in October that year. He's pissed off Titan. And so he published that Franklin was a, was a fool. And then Franklin came back and published that Titan had actually died in accordance with his prediction, and it was Titan's ghost writing this almanac. <laughs> um, and then, so then this was like ingrained that the Leeds family was the devil and evil. The Quakers ostracized them. Ben Franklin made fun of them. And um, so that's kind of like the grounding of this lore. Then also the Leeds family crest of the almanac has this creature, this wine verm that's often associated with what the jersey devil looks like and it was actually this bat wing like dragon creature was on their family almanac so that's, that's not creepy another one of those origins which i did that's not awesome. expect an almanac feud <laughs> wow <laughs> they don't happen almanac feuds just don't happen like they used to right no, no they don't you're right you know now that they have yeah. an atomic clock it's like well <laughs> I just love how Ben Franklin just threw in there. Yeah, Titan actually died, and his ghost is the one publishing mm -hmm. his almanac now. Yeah. <laughs> Was this before or after the key on the kite got struck by lightning? I'm just curious. Oh, that is a good question. <laughs> I mean, if it was after, it explains a whole lot, right? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. 
but both of these stories kind of go down into like the psychological need for um, these cryptids are kind of explaining the unexplained or it's grounded in like some thought that this these people are evil <laughs> and then they just manifest it as cryptids or something like that. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that makes cryptozoology in general um, so accepted is the fact that humans are uniquely evolved to tell stories, right? I mean, we, our brains are wired so that that's the way we learn best. And there is not a single human culture um, present, most likely in the past as well, though there's no way to ever know this because it wouldn't leave a record, that didn't use storytelling to pass down information. And so, you know, all of these cryptid stories have some rooting in something that's real and um, use all of this imagination to fill in the details that if we don't understand as a way for us to learn, right? Yeah. Um, I find it fascinating that they always, you know, sort of, they always start with something that's tangible and always become something that is so intangible <laughs> yeah. that there's, I, like, I don't know how people buy it. But at the same time, when there isn't an alternative explanation, I don't see why people wouldn't. Yeah. Well, think about the effect of this, too. Because you talked about how we are, like, wired to respond to storytelling. Like, if you were a mother in Leeds, New Jersey, or what would be the proto-Leeds, New Jersey. In Leeds the Pine Point, Barrens. The Pine Barrens. The Pine Barrens, yeah. And you didn't want your children to, like, run off into the Pine Barrens because it's incredibly dense and easy for you to lose your way. There's no real markings, and there are lots of animals that would probably eat a small child if given the opportunity in those barrens uh, that are just, like, bears and wolves and stuff. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> standard non-cryptids. Um Saying, hey, don't go into the woods because you're going to get lost is probably not that effective. But saying, don't go into the woods because there is a sentient goat bat person that yeah. could take you to uh, consort with the devil, that that's probably a little bit more effective. Yeah, I'm not going I there. agree. It's I agree. very memorable. Totally agree. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to not go to New Jersey, but... Uh, <laughs> I also liked how in the article, um, I'm guessing you'll probably share the link. They, they talk about the psychological need for, for these monsters that has always been there, and it's to project our primordial feel, fears onto creatures. So mm -hmm. we're, mm -hmm. we have this unknown fear of the dark or the unknown of the reptilian, and if you put a monster associated with this, that projection kind of is Yeah, there it gives you something to actually project yeah. onto. I... I want to I want to take the Jersey Devil to a couple a couple decades or a century later to see how it kind of morphed into something else uh, and when it became an attraction uh, and we'll talk about Norman Jeffries and the Arch Street Museum in beautiful Philadelphia Pennsylvania where he was exhibiting the Jersey Devil for all to see for a coin of some sort I'm guessing and when you walked into the viewing studio let me set the scene maybe we'll put some like old-timey music behind us the curtain would open and you would see in a smoke-filled cage the jersey devil there with wings and shrieks for you to experience firsthand what it was was a kangaroo that mr jeffries found painted black and white stripes attached wings to it with like a belt 
and would stab with a broomstick that had a nail attached to it that would because apparently kangaroos will scream if they are like stabbed it was alive this is horrible yeah so that's that's where a lot of the artistic depictions of the jersey devil come from is this like attraction when it's from like the 1800s ish oh my gosh yeah that's pretty crazy right you know i think we mentioned storytelling so why don't we move into the second half of our program where we're gonna have a story brought to you from the mind of pulp from beyond the veil's own cody sullivan before we take you to Cody Sullivan's tale of devilry and cryptozoology in the wilderness, we're going to do a quick outro so you can just end with that fun pulp sound. So, you should probably follow us on social media if you want to hear more stuff. It's not going to sound like this because Halloween only comes but once a year, but we do a lot of fun science communication. So, if this is your first episode, why not like give us a follow on social media? You can follow me at James underscore read three on Twitter. Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or on Instagram at Starshipin. Jason, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at OrganJM. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at SciNightPod, and you can find us at our home on the web, SciNight.com, where you'll find all of our past episodes, including our other Halloween spectaculars from the past two years, and links to the stories we talk about and the people that we talk to, and you'll also find our merch. So you might want to go pick that up before the holiday shopping season starts. That is all available at SciNight.com. That is the end of this episode. We will get you to Cody Sullivan after this message from a podcast. I think you will enjoy. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like, really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. town, including me, grew up listening to the stories about the forest on Eagle's Bluff. That's all anyone ever called it. The forest. Some geriatric group of town elders probably decided a couple generations ago that if they gave it a name, acknowledged the mystery, that there'd be no end to the weekend convoys of daredevil college kids and local skeptics heading up into those woods. I'm sure they thought they were keeping everyone quite safe. And now I know they were. It had been over four years since someone disappeared up on that bluff, and only two years before that, three others went missing as well. 
The papers didn't write much about them. None of them were locals, just hikers on the Great Northern Trail. And all were presumed to have died meeting some unfortunate end, be it starvation, exposure, a fall, or predators. The local PD issued warnings about hiking in unfamiliar terrain and expressed their condolences. They refused to comment on questions suggesting possible connections to the disappearances, and everyone in town knew that when it came to Eagles Bluff, the less questions, the better. Well, a co-worker of mine from the shop headed up on the Great Northern Trail up to Eagles Bluff and had been missing for four days. He told me he was going to check around the outskirts of the forest to look for chaga. He'd always been a real nature hippie kind of guy, foraging for herbal remedies. Truth be told, I didn't really care for him that much, but after the local PD declined to mobilize a search and rescue attempt, I decided I'd come up and take a quick look. I guess you could say I was something of a local skeptic myself. I stepped off the trail and into the forest, intending to stay close by and be brief in my search. After all, if he was still up here, he'd have to be close to the trail. Superstitions or otherwise, the trees here were thick, and their roots snaked along the forest floor, making the simple act of walking a perilous endeavor. With each step deeper into the woods, it was as if the trees grew nearer together, denser, blocking out more and more of that little light that trickled through the canopy, that blue-gray light that signified twilight. Had I really been in the forest that long? I had to hurry if I wanted to make it back to the trail before nightfall. Waves of self-embittered thoughts battered my anxious brain. Somehow, I must have gotten turned around, and I was unsure which direction I had come. The word lost, I whispered silently in my mind, as the greedy trees drank up the waning sunlight around me. I was traveling for some time in the dark before I came across a gurgling spring from which a small creek flowed. I drank greedily from the source until my throat was numb and my teeth ached. Standing up again, my eyes scanned the tree line in futility. It was then that another wave of dread confusion and panic overtook me as I felt once again horribly, terribly alone. Alone with nothing but the nocturnal sound of the forest ringing in my head. I turned my gaze back to the creek in hopes to glean some sort of direction from the flow. I saw something small and dark on the ground. My eyes now having adjusted to low light, I was sure it wasn't a rock, and I went over to it cautiously. I thought at first it would be a clue to the whereabouts of my missing co-worker, yet when I was standing over it, I recognized the shape and the tail of the deceased creature before me. A large gray squirrel, dead and sprawling on its stomach. The natural progression of decomposition had yet to touch the soft fur, and in the blackness of night, I could make out the slick pool of blood near the head of the thing. I flipped it over with my boot to get a better look, and felt my stomach churn. The body of the squirrel seemed to be wholly intact, 
but the empty socket gaze of its scooped-out eyes bore holes right through me as my heartbeat quickened. Suddenly, from above me, I heard the unmistakable sound of something moving through the trees. Branches snapped, and I could hear some of the smaller twigs land on the forest floor with gentle thumps. Then the smell hit me. It seemed to cling to the gentle breeze that brushed over me, and at first I thought it was just the smell of death, that perhaps the squirrel had internally begun decomposing and my agitations merely kicked up the fetid stench from the corpse. Before I could cover my nose, a sickly sweet smell mixed with the death odor, something like like ammonia and jasmine flowers mixed with unwashed skin. This new melange of scents made my head swirl as I plugged my nose. There again I heard it. This time something landed in the trees close behind me. I wheeled around and looked up. I thought I saw something perched high in the branches. Something unmoving with a shape undeterminable through the shadows. I took a step closer, never taking my eyes off the thing. A stray moonbeam was liberated from behind the cloud cover just long enough to strike the tree. And what that wretched moonlight revealed stopped my progress towards the tree and held my breath trapped in my throat. It was looking down at me, looking down with eyes like saucers that reflected the moonlight. Loose flaps of skin draped limply over the body of the thing, and I thought I saw the sharp bristle of quills rising from the back of the thing's neck. It stared at me, unmoving and unblinking. It made no noise, but the sweet ammonia death stench was suddenly so pungent I felt my eyes stinging and welling up with tears. When it did move, I was startled by the jerky, almost reptilian movement of its arm. It suddenly raised a spindly hand up to the tree and raised a horribly elongated finger up against the bark. The digit was thin, and had the suggestion of skin pulled impossibly taut over bare bone. Just as soon as it came, however, the moonbeam disappeared again behind the clouds, and the figure was shrouded in darkness again. And that's when I first heard the tapping. Before I knew it, I was running. I had no sense of direction, no sense of time, or how long I had been stuck in these woods. The sun had gone down several hours ago, and though my most urgent action was to get away from the thing in the tree, I had the sense that if nothing else, if I should make it until morning, I'd be safe in these woods again. At least, safe from whatever the hell the thing chasing me was. I could hear the creature leaping through the trees behind me, but dared not to turn and look. It didn't seem to matter how far I ran, or how great the distance between the treetops grew. The thing remained in pursuit. In my haste to get away, I nearly sprinted over the edge of an embankment. 
I managed to halt my momentum a mere step or two before the ledge. I, I caught my breath for a moment and strained my ears against the sound of the night. I turned my eyes back the way I came and saw nothing. Far off in the distance, I heard the tapping start up again. The creature came into view again as it closed the distance. I saw the dark shape leap and soar from one tree to the next, spreading its wretched limbs wide and gliding noiselessly through the canopy. The smell thickened the air again as it landed in the tree closest to me. The strange silhouette of the thing's round head revealed the presence of two great ears on either side. They twitched and flicked in the night air as the creature raised its bony finger to the tree again. Without thinking, I rolled myself down the embankment, upending over and over and over three or more times before I felt the sharp impact and pain of landing amongst the rocks. Lying deep within the chasm, about ten feet down, what little light illuminated the forest floor could not penetrate the recess in which I now found myself, banged up, but alive. I sat up and pulled my knees close to my chest, focusing intently on slowing and quieting my breath. I sat in silence in that indescribable darkness for minutes before the tapping started again. And after some time, I heard the sound of the creature disappearing into the trees and away from the embankment's edge. I sat there shivering and in shock, eyes staring wide into the enveloping darkness before eventually slipping into a dreamless slumber. When I opened my eyes again, the coming dawn brought with it feeble light enough to penetrate the chasm in which I sat. There were branches and stones littering the ground where I had landed, and turning my eyes back up to the top of the embankment, I saw various roots of trees protruding from the eroded earthen wall in front of me and behind me. There was... There was something else, too. Something that would have shaken me to my core if I had found it before the events of last night, but now, in my shock, barely registered a wincing look. Sitting propped up with his back against the opposite wall of the embankment was the recently deceased corpse of my co-worker. His gray body was exposed as the tie-dye shirt he had been wearing had been cut off and used to create a makeshift bandage around his thigh for what could only be a broken femur sustained in the fall. The shirt was so soaked in blood, and his cloudy eyes stared blankly upwards towards the sky. I pulled myself to my feet and began the long process of climbing the roots back up the embankment and away from the quarry which had brought me into this nightmare to begin with. While I didn't have a compass, I knew the direction of the rising sun was east. 
With the forest abutting the western edge of the Great Northern Trail, I finally had a bearing. I would walk towards the coming dawn, away from the blackness of the forest and away from the nightmare stalker that pursued me. Soon enough, I could see the trees thinning out, as they do, near the forest's edge, and what's more, the blue-gray light of early morning began taking on increasingly yellow and orange hues as the sun was soon to crest the mountain tops to the east. And that's when I heard the tapping again. This time, when I heard the tapping, I knew I was so close to escape. I took off running through the trees towards the sun as the creature glided from tree to tree behind me. Branches raked my face, and more than once I was tripped up by an outstretched tree root. Each time I fell, I picked myself back up and continued my escape. I erupted from the tree line into an open field just as the sun rose above the distant peaks, flooding the valley with golden rays of light. When I turned around, I stumbled back in horror. Gliding towards me from the still-shadowed treetops was a grotesque humanoid creature about the size of a large dog. Its limbs were splayed out wide, and the skin flaps were taut between each limb like a fleshy sail in the wind. Its large eyes were wholly black, and rows of thin, needle-like teeth were bared. A ring of pointed quills surmounted the thing's head like a lion's mane. As the spreading sunlight struck the creature, it became disoriented and landed abruptly on the ground no more than twenty feet away from me. It shielded its eyes with the skin flap of its arm, and when it looked towards me again, I saw the eyes had changed. What were nearly black pits before were strikingly amber, with the tiniest pinprick of a pupil in the center. It tried to take a step towards me but its movements were clumsy, and it stumbled to a stop. It bellowed a final cry, baring its hideous maw, before thankfully turning its back to me and the sun, and began a shuffling peregrination back to the tree line. I tell you this story not to frighten you, but to implore your caution when you find yourself amongst the darkened timbers or anywhere else that is firmly in nature's domain. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Strange things. Dangerous things. As for me, my hiking days are over. I'll continue sharing this tale with anyone who will listen. My story of encountering the Eagle's Bluff Tapper. Yeah. Then it goes bing, and then someone says, come here. Yeah. <laughs> I love that ad. <laughs> I do, too. I want to voice act in one of those episodes sometimes. So you got to get me hooked.